you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Jonah, chapter number four. Jonah, chapter number four. It's kind of a working assumption that everyone knows about the book of Jonah. It's a basic message, even if you are not a, a Christian kid or grow up in a Christian home. The story itself is so outstanding, and the imagery of Jonah is so commonplace for children in our culture. There's some level of understanding of the basic substance of Jonah's story, at least as it relates to him being swallowed up by a great fish and eventually spat out on dry ground. However, there is a powerful and often overlooked element to the book of Jonah on the love of God for the nations. And that happens to be a special emphasis of this fourth chapter. There's kind of a back and forth in the treatment of the book of Jonah, more traditional treatments of Jonah that completely sell out to the teaching of evangelism and mission as it relates to the book of Jonah, and then the other end of the spectrum that completely sells out to teaching on emphasizing the sovereignty of God in all things as it's taught in the book of Jonah. But the reality is that these two are working together. God demonstrates his absolute sovereignty over even the smallest of things in this fourth chapter, and at the same time expresses his deep and abiding concern for the people of Nineveh, people of another nation from Jonah's perspective, and God's tender love, care, and mercy for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jonah chapter 4, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read together in God's holy word, Jonah 4. And verse number one, the Bible says here, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God appointed a plan. And it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The Bible says here in verse 1 that Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. There's a literary brilliance about the book of Jonah that we might highlight at a number of points along the way in these few verses in chapter 4. 
But there's a word play that's unfolding even in verse 1. It doesn't communicate in our English translations, but it's worth our noting together. When God called Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 to take his message to the people of Nineveh, God noted that the evil of Nineveh has come before me. That word evil there, at least its root, is the root that lies behind the phrase here, greatly displeased. Jonah was greatly displeased. Now, with any language, you can take a single word and you can verb a word or you can noun a word. You can treat that word in a variety of different ways, expressing different ideas. But there's a very deliberate and careful point being made here in verse number one. For the first time in the book of Jonah, the evil that had been associated with the people of Nineveh has now been attached to Jonah. In other words, Jonah's response to the grace that God would show the people of Nineveh is as evil as the very acts of violence that Nineveh demonstrates to, to elicit the judgment of God against them in the first place. Nineveh has put off their evil deeds and Jonah has put them on. Now, if we just sort of trace the story of Jonah until this point, in fact, if we had the advantage of reading together for the first time the book of Jonah and allowing ourselves to be surprised at what we discover in each passing verse, you and I would in all likelihood be astonished at what is told in verse number one. Again, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. At what? At one of the greatest awakenings in the biblical account? At, a, at an incredible revival that unfolds in the city of Nineveh? How often have we prayed as a body? How often have you prayed in discipleship groups? How often have we prayed as individuals that God would save in this profound and powerful way that only he could be credited with? How often have we asked for an awakening, a movement of God against all odds? How often have we asked that as we go and share the message of the gospel among nations who know nothing of Jesus Christ as the only Son of God, how often have we asked that God would open doors, that the, the deepest and most ardent of unbelievers would give themselves to faith in Jesus? That's precisely what God has done in the city of Nineveh. Jonah has gone there as the reluctant prophet to a people who only knew of the God of Israel by his association to the nation of Israel if they knew anything of his identity whatsoever. And yet Jonah chapter 3 tells us that the men and women of that city believed the God of the Bible. And they clothed themselves in sackcloth and they sat themselves in ashes as an expression of their remorse over their sin, their acts of violence. They bring these before God in repentance and God relents at the judgment that would have otherwise overwhelmed them. And it's at this, it's at this that Jonah is greatly displeased and becomes furious. I don't know that this sentiment is shared often in our church, that of Jonah, and I certainly hope that it's not. But it's worth noting that this is not an isolated incident in the Bible. And it's the kind of attitude that we need to be cautious against. There are those of you here who have been hurt, who have been victimized, who have been traumatized, who have been offended in ways that are beyond my imagination. 
it's, it's needed that we would note that even for those who have sinned against you or sinned against us collectively, that the grace of God is sufficient even to cover those sins. We saw touches of this in the aftermath of 9-11. There were in certain parts of, of the church, certain parts of the Christian world, an, an added level of motivation to take the gospel to those unreached Muslim countries. But there was also at the time, same time a tremendous amount of vitriol and want for vengeance that stirred in the hearts of American Christians. It's that sentiment that Jonah 4 warns us against. And to some extent, it's that sentiment that Jesus warns against in one of the best known parables in all of the New Testament. Almost everyone knows the parable of the prodigal son. Where the younger son comes to his father and asks for his inheritance. Give me my inheritance. He takes that inheritance, that request on its face is an insult to his father. Nevertheless, he takes that inheritance and the Bible says that he squanders his inheritance in prodigal living. He finally finds rock bottom in his life when he's feeding himself among the pigs and determines that I'm going to go home. And I'm going to plead that my father would receive me if as nothing else, a servant in his household. But what he finds is his father running to him with great mercy, forgiveness, and grace, celebrating the return of his prodigal son. Most believe that the primary function of that parable is to teach of God's gladness to receive the sinner. And that is a central feature of the parable, but it is not the central feature. In fact, the context for Luke chapter 15 and the three parables that follow, one of which is the parable of the prodigal son, is a scenario in which Jesus dines with tax collectors, sexually immoral people, and the greatest of sinners that Israel had to offer. And the Pharisees didn't like it. Later in the parable of the prodigal son, near the end of that prodigal, just after the father commands his servants to kill the fatted calf to celebrate the return of his prodigal son, that older brother reintroduces himself into the scene and expresses his frustration that the father would receive his younger brother after all of his foolishness and prodigal living, that the father would receive this son again. Like the previous two parables, the father helps the older brother to understand and instructs us that heaven rejoices at the restoration of a single sinner in repentance. There ought to be nothing more in the heart of the Christian than absolute elation when the greatest of sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. There oughtn't have been any other emotion expressed by Jonah, the reluctant prophet, except exuberance that God would bring about such an awakening, such a restoration in the city of Nineveh. But his pride and his prejudice just could not let Jonah see the greatness of what God had done in that city. And that pride and that prejudice expressed here as great displeasure identifies Jonah with the very evil for which Nineveh was under indictment in the first place. Now, there's a, a parallel that's established here in Jonah 4, similar to what we observed in Jonah chapter 3. If you go all the way back to Jonah chapter 1, Jonah runs from the call of God, finds himself in a ship, 
headed to Tarshish to the very ends of the earth. He's going the opposite direction of where God has called him to go. He finds himself tossed on the sea. The wind and wave beat upon the ship. Eventually, the sailors determine that Jonah is the cause for this great distress on the sea, and they throw him overboard. And Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea, and there at the bottom of the sea is gulped up by a great fish that becomes his uh, place of residence for the next three days and three nights. And God, in an act of great mercy, provides for Jonah's salvation. And then Jonah prays in Jonah chapter 2, and his prayer is one of gladness and celebration at the great grace that God has shown him. In Jonah chapter 3, the people of Nineveh get the same grace and mercy Jonah received in Jonah chapter 1. Now in Jonah 4, he will pray again. Only this time his prayer is not one of gratitude, it's one of grumbling and complaining. Look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. This is the first time in the book of Jonah that we really understand Jonah's motive in not answering the call of God. We've assumed an understanding of this all along the way, and we've had the benefit of reading forward in the book of Jonah, but this is the first time in the narrative that his motives are truly revealed to us. I knew when I was still in my own country that you would work and move in this way, hence my frustration. There, there are really three motives that appear in these few verses as Jonah offers his prayer of complaint. There's resentment over God's mercy. Again, what was good for Jonah, he had deemed to be no good whatsoever for the people of Nineveh. Like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 15, he resented the fact that God would show others the very grace and mercy God had shown even himself. It's very easy, listen, it's very easy as believers to forget who we were apart from the grace of God. It's so easy to slide into Phariseeism, to assess ourselves as better than we are in reality, and forget the muck and the mire from which God called us to himself by nothing more than grace. You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't wise up and get it together. You're not merely the product of a better family environment, a greater intellect. You're not the result of working harder over the duration of your life. You are where you are by the grace of God. But for that same grace, those with whom you look at, such, look at with such disgust will remain in their state. But the grace of God that saved your life is sufficient to save theirs as well. And Jonah simply cannot bear with this in the moment. There's a second feature here that I believe to be expressed again for the first time in verse 2. Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? And the language puts added emphasis on my own country. Jonah just can't fathom. He's dissatisfied altogether with the, with the idea that God would work to save Gentile people. That God would save people who don't look like us, come from where we come from, speak the way we speak, share the same values, culturally at least, that God would work and save powerfully in those ways Jonah just cannot accept or embrace. 
Jonah is effectively saying here, I was in a great place for ministry. You could have saved those people. Could have been at work among those people. They are more acceptable in the first place. But you chose to send me to Nineveh. And I knew, God, I knew, I knew, I knew. I knew you would do just what you always do. You demonstrate your faithfulness, your abounding love, and your compassion toward these people. In essence, Jonah's frustrated with the sovereignty of God over all things. Jonah 4, as much as any other chapter in the book, demonstrates his sovereignty. Note later in the passage that he appoints a plant and he appoints a worm and he appoints a scorching east wind. God is actively involved even in the lives of worms and the growth of plants. God is actively involved in the nature of the wind we find beating down upon us. There is no element of this world that has escaped his attention. And in this particular scenario, the well-being of the people of Nineveh have not, have not slipped his gaze either. I knew you'd do it. I knew this is what you'd do. And you did it. You've proven who you are. He doesn't say this with gladness of heart. I know that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. This is the first time, mind you, that Jonah asked to die in our passage. This is a reminder to us. There are a number of reminders in our passage, helpful reminders, but this is a note of how stupid sin can make you. you. You lose the ability to see things as they are. You can lose under the influence of sin the capacity for sound reason whatsoever. Altogether lose it. I've observed in the past few days myself rejoicing at the overturn of Roe versus Wade, confounded at how anyone could do anything other than rejoice over this turn of fortune in our country. The irrational responses by so many within our country to a decision that is so basic, so elementary, so readily seen for those who have eyes to see it. The irrationality, the losing of the collective mind is a testament to the blinding power of sin. And you and I are not exempt. You and I are not exempt. It may be easy to see, it may be easy to see the speck in someone else's eye while looking around the logs in our own. We need to be keenly aware of the reality that we have the same justifying power in our own experience to make sense out of sin that makes no sense whatsoever. And we ought to be on guard as a result of this. I would note, secondly here, there's a reminder of the need for ongoing repentance in these initial verses of our passage. Again, if we could go back and read Jonah for the first time and allow ourselves to be surprised by what we're discovering, we might be surprised after Jonah chapter 2 and that moving, heart-rending prayer of repentance that Jonah has not rectified this situation in his heart. After all, this is what moved him to run in the first place. And God put him in the belly of a fish. 
And Jonah repented of his motives and his heart and his resistance to God's will. And he spells out that repentance in that moving, heart-rending prayer of Jonah chapter 2. Yet, here we are again. The reality is that for most of us, inclined toward a certain sin or a certain manner of sin, repentance will not be this monumental moment that we're able to move away from, never again bothered by, troubled by, or tempted by that sin again. For most everyone, the sin that easily entangles us will be a lifelong war. You'll repent of that sin today. And you'll find that on tomorrow, given occasion, the sediment of that sin will stir up in your heart and there'll be a tendency to revert back to your former way of life. And when you are, you repent again and again and again and again. The Christian life is not about beginning with repentance and faith. It's about waking up each day, repenting of our sin and believing on the promises of the gospel for our salvation, keenly aware that though the spirit is willing, the flesh is incredibly weak, and given occasion, we will always revert back to our old ways. That's what Jonah does. In fact, we end the book of Jonah without resolution as to whether or not Jonah ever really figures it out at all. Jonah finds himself back in the place of Jonah chapter 1. Resistant so much to what God desired to do that he would have rather died than to see God move with compassion and mercy on the people of Nineveh. In verse 4, the Lord asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Are you right? Jonah doesn't answer, at least as far as we can tell, at least not so much as it's included in the narrative of Jonah 4, but he will later. This will not be the last time God would ask the question. Rather than giving Jonah the occasion to answer outright this question, is it right for you to be angry? God provides something of an object lesson. God allows Jonah, affords Jonah the opportunity to experience a bit of his heart for the people of Nineveh. Let me show you what I mean, beginning in verse 5. Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. The Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Now Jonah goes out to the east of the city of Nineveh. He's not sitting there to rest, to take a break. He's sitting there wringing his hands in the hope that God would do this Sodom and Gomorrah-like thing to the city of Nineveh and rain fire and brimstone on the city, bringing about its utter destruction. That's what he's there hoping for. God had relented from his judgment. Now Jonah hopes that God would relent from his mercy. He sits himself out there in the heat of the day. The Bible says that he makes a shelter. The idea here is that he pulled back some vines and branches in a thicket and made as best as was possible a place for himself within the, the, the thicket there. And God gives a plant, a plant that would provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah quite quickly sets his affection on that plant. Jonah's settling into the comfort and ease that that plant is affording him, and God appoints a worm. 
And the worm begins to eat away at that plant. And before you know it, God provides a scorching east wind. And the combination of that wind and the sun and the effects of that worm gnawing away at that prized plant leads to its rapid destruction. It arises in a night and it falls in a night. I'd love to know what kind of plant it is. As a Mississippi boy, I suspect it could have been kudzu. <laughs> it comes up and then it goes away. Jonah's displeased at the destruction of this plant. And he says, it's better if I were to just die. Now, God asked Jonah again in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, here's the deal. And God's going to help us to see this a little clearer later in verses 10 and 11. But Jonah hadn't worked for the plant. Jonah didn't plant the plant. Jonah didn't water the plant. He only had to plant a day. He had no investment of labor. He had no investment of, of time. He had no investment whatsoever. And yet he had, he had, he had allowed this, this affection for this plant in some way to establish itself in his heart. Is it right that you would be angry about the plant? Now, Jonah can't see it, but what God is going to demonstrate is that the people of Nineveh are more important to me than your measly plant. It is assumed in our passage, but perhaps in this environmentally frenzied culture we are living in, it is worth noting that in God's economy, the people are more important than the plant. Can't you see, Jonah? You've no investment of time, no investment of energy. Whereas the people of Nineveh are my creation. I made them from the foundation of the world. I knew them. Each of them created in the image of God. We've not taken note of this, and there's some complexity behind this idea. But every time the city of Nineveh is referred to as that great city, there are some literary tricks being played with the grammar and the syntax in order to demonstrate that the greatness of that city is not about their ingenuity. It's not about their geographic location. It's not about any of their own personal works, but the sovereign provision of God in and around the city of Nineveh. God has made that great city the great city. We can get so laser focused in our reading of the Old Testament sometimes we can forget that God has not lost attention or focus on all of the other nations at work in the world around Israel in that period of the Old Testament. Perhaps Jonah had convinced himself that, himself that God's exclusive interest was in Israel. But not even the work of a worm or a day-long plant had escaped the attention of God outside the boundaries of Israel. God was deeply invested in the city of Nineveh. God was deeply invested in the men and the women and the children of that great city. They held priority in his eyes. He made them. He sustained them. He stood with them. Every aspect of their life had been pieced together by the good and faithful providence of the all-sovereign God of heaven. And now Jonah heartbroken over the plant of all things couldn't find it in himself to see the mercy the heart that God would have for this people who were the creative work of his hand this investment of time and effort and energy the product of his provision Jonah responds it's right I'm angry enough to die 
And for the third time, Jonah states his suicidal de desire to just die rather than to see God work in this incredible way in the city of, of Nineveh. Verse 10, the Bible says, the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you didn't labor over and didn't grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? And the resounding answer of the people of God ought to be yes. The open-ended question with which Jonah ends, is it right that God would have a heart for the nations? And our answer is yes. Is it right that God would be moved even for those nations who've given themselves to great unrighteousness and the answer of God's people ought to be yes? Is it right that the people of God seeking to emulate the heart of our God would have a heart for the nations? And our answer is yes. Is it right that we as individuals would prioritize the advancement of the gospel among the nations because our God has a heart for the nations and we seek to emulate his heart for his people? And the answer would be a resounding yes, 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 yes. So much of the treatment of Jonah chapter 4 that would suggest we can't know the answer as to how Jonah chapter 4 ends. The expectation of the prophet, and I believe the expectation of our God, is that there would be such a common sense answer that we could all rightly provide in light of God's heart for people of every tribe and tongue and nation the appropriate answer. And again, it is a resounding yes. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is right that God would care about Nineveh. If you and I, as evil people, have the capacity to stir affection for measly things like plants, for which we did not ourselves labor, and if so, not in the incredible ways our God has worked and moved in creation, nor do we have the investment of time and other investment in the well-being of plants and possessions and pets and various other things that are small in comparison to people, people on whom God has set his affection. It is right that God would have a deep and abiding affection for the people of, of Nineveh. There is, again, I mentioned earlier, this kind of back and forth between seeing Jonah as a call to missions and evangelism and seeing Jonah as a theological treatise on the sovereignty of God. Those two are not in competition. In fact, they always work together. Jesus speaks of his own lordship and authority in salvation. He is drawing those who will come to him. And at the same time, all who come, I will in no wise cast out. He promises, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold. That is the guarantee of all who take the message of the gospel to the nations again and again, these two principles, these two teachings working hand in hand, God's lordship over all things and his desire to save to the uttermost. Those two work in tandem here in the book of Jonah. I shared with you um, in the baptism service earlier, in the part of our service where we celebrated baptism that this past week was the anniversary of my coming to faith in Jesus. This is, Jonah chapter 4 is, 
the passage that was preached on the evening that God called me to ministry. I, I, was, I was 19 when I was saved, and I wasn't much older than that when God called me to ministry. When you're 19 and you get saved in most Baptist churches, you're too old to be in the youth group, and you're too immature to be a part of regular church activities, so they make you the chaperone of the youth trip. That's how that works itself out. I had been sent on this particular week to uh, a, a newly born mission effort at New Orleans Seminary. We were being housed on the campus of the seminary. We we're part of Mission Lab in the early years of Mission Lab, and some of you may have experience with that. There were probably 150 students there, students and chaperones all together, and they had us in a glorified broom closet in one of the dormitory buildings where we were meeting for chapel services in the evening. Yeah, this preacher who was a student, he was a master student at the time. He looked like he was about 12 years old, and, and he preached this passage. And I remember a lot. I'm, I, I remember a lot about that sermon. I could write you a sermon outline, and I could tell you most of the things that were said in that passage. And in hindsight, I'm not entirely certain it was a really good expositional treatment of the text. But I can remember a, a certain point along the way when it was noted that if God could use this worm, surely there could be a place for me in kingdom service. Now again, I'm not sure that that's the intended teaching of the text, but it strung a chord with me that evening. I believed initially the call of God on my life to be to international missions, to take the message of the gospel to nations far and wide, and that struck a chord with me for a variety of reasons, but in practical terms, it would allow me to get away from the life I had always lived and move far, far away from all the skeletons I had in 19 years worth of closet. I think there were probably some other factors that influenced me in that direction on that evening. That young master student preacher was David Platt, who later became our International Mission Board president, and everything that David preaches is about missions. So it'd be natural to assume that was the nature of the call in a setting like that. I remember going to the counselor and sharing with them what I believed God calling me to do, and then explaining to me that in order to fulfill this call, I would need to finish my college education, and I would need to, uh, to get a certain number of, of seminary credit hours. I was there as a 20-year-old high school dropout, and just being crestfallen at this news, it's kind of comical in hindsight that seminary training would be the thing that would stand between me and serving in some capacity. Five seminary degrees later, uh, that didn't prove to be much of an issue for me, but at that point in my life, it was a major, major obstacle. And over the course of the next several months, it became clear that God had not called me to go to the nations, but to be a pastor of a local church here stateside with a heart for the nations and a desire to see men and women sent from the American local church to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Again, I'm not sure that's what's intended by Jonah 4, but in light of my experience, I would be remiss if I did not invite you to acknowledge that like me and a certain worm in our passage, if there could be a place for us within service to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, there is place likewise for you. And you ought to search your heart, seek to discover precisely where and what manner of service God has called you to be a part of. 
And you ought to do so in light of God's expressed heart, his compassion, his mercy, his love, his affection, and deep investment in the nations. The sheer fact that we are here this morning opposite the world, the nation of Israel, opposite the world, the nation of Nineveh, is, is proof positive that God has a keen interest in the ends of the earth. That the longing of our God's heart is to gather to himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation, a people all his own from a variety of backgrounds and interests and cultures and languages. And we ought to labor alongside our God to see that those sheep not yet of this fold come to know the goodness of our great shepherd. Come to him. Come to him in service. Come to him in service. Throw caution to the wind. Spend yourself in service to the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I want to remind you of the simplicity of Jonah's message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in light of the call in his life and the reluctance he exhibits and our emphasis this morning on the nations, I want us to note together how much better our message is than that assigned to Jonah. The message of God is evolving over the course of biblical history. We're able to observe this from Genesis to Malachi. It was just a bit that's known and understood in the early days of creation and a bit more with each passing book, a bit more with every bit of God's self-revelation. For instance, in Exodus 3, God says, my name is I am, and for the first time, self-identifies. He makes it known, it becomes clear in Samuel and in the Kings that God's desire is to work and move through one in the lineage of David, that what Israel really needs is the ideal king. He makes it clear in Isaiah and other prophets that what they need is not only a king, but a priest king. Not only a priest king, but, uh, but, but a, a priest king who knows the divine nature. When that king is foretold in the latter part of the Bible, he is foretold as the prince of peace, the everlasting God. They need the God king. And as the gospels open in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message of the gospel has reached full fruition in the fullness of time. God had sent forth his only son, Jesus. God would come down for heaven, from heaven, clothe himself in flesh, walk among us without sin, sacrifice his life on the cross, take it up again three days later, a foreshadowing of of what the future holds for us, an everlasting and eternal kingdom, everlasting and eternal life in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of all our sins, the indwelling power and presence of his Holy Spirit. By the message of the gospel, he would make the dead to live. The first sermon the church preaches highlights this message. and The invitation is given this way. Peter said the promises to you and your children and your children's children, as many as the Lord our God would call, come and find forgiveness, full and free. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for these moments to reflect on the teaching of Jonah chapter 4. Hide these principles away in the hearts of your people that we might not sin against you. God, give us a heart for the nation such as you have. 
Help us, Lord, not in our self-righteousness to see others as worse than us or undeserving of the grace you've afforded us, Lord. Help us to be moved by mercy that we would extend the offer of the gospel to all who would hear. Save some, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.